Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Uh, Joshua Ehrlich. Uh, Dr. Joshua Ehrlich is a historian of knowledge, political thought, and the East India Company and the British Empire and the South and Southeast Asia. Currently, he's an assistant professor of history at the University of Macau. He received his PhD and MA from Harvard University and his BA from the University of Chicago. And he recently published a book with Cambridge University Press called The East India Company and the Politics of Knowledge. Uh, Joshua, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Morteza. Right. Uh, before we start, can you briefly introduce yourself? Tell us about your background and your field of expertise and why you decided to write a book uh, about East India Company, but on a completely different aspect of East India Company, which is which is the politics of knowledge, which we'll talk about more. Sure. Well, I got my start really in the Scottish Enlightenment as an undergraduate. I was thinking a lot about this moment of uh, change intellectually in the British Isles and in Europe. And I came to think more about beyond that intellectual environment too, the kind of global connections that Scotland had at that time. So by the time I was doing my PhD, I was thinking a lot about South Asia and the British East India Company. I found that a lot of the intellectuals I was familiar with back in Britain, people like David Hume and Adam Smith and Edward Gibbon were uh, very familiar to members of the East India Company. In some cases, they were friends who socialized together. Certainly, there were networks linking all of these people together. And I came to realize, in fact, that the East India Company was heavily involved in the world of scholarship in Europe in the late 18th century and beyond, the Republic of Letters. And so once I understood that there were such links between two worlds that you might think of as very different, the world of conquest and trade on the one hand and the world of scholarship and science and publishing books and sponsoring universities on the other hand, I wanted to know why this relationship existed and what was what were the stakes of that And this led me down the path uh, that took me to my book, and I I suppose we'll get more into this, but very briefly, essentially, I I came to find that the East India Company really relied on its scholarly activities for legitimacy, and it made a lot of political hay out of these activities. And I think that this went beyond a simple kind of window dressing. It it really impacted the company's ideology. So at quite an ideological level, the company committed itself to knowledge. And that's really what the book is about, how it did this and the changing debates around knowledge that the company was involved in, in its later phase from the late 18th century to the mid 19th century. And it's a very interesting topic because generally speaking, when we talk about this in the company, it's mainly how they have manipulated other countries, but you have looked at it from completely different, different perspective. Now, the question I have is that, if if the company in in its pursuit of science uh, was it in the in the interest of maintaining and supporting their economic military or political domination or was it for the sake of advancing their cause of science? Yes, well, I, I think obviously we can't uh, forget that the context for all of these scholarly activities was this company that was engaging in the pursuit of profits at a global level and was engaging in. Um, a violent expansion and subjugation of of the Indian subcontinent. So that's an important background here. Um, 
I came to find as I read more and more sources, however, that this wasn't a simple relationship of a kind of uh, uh, simply practical information gathering for the purposes of rule or conquest, or even a, a kind of simple um, alibi for its activities. It, it went a little bit deeper. And so, well, I, of, of course, think that ideology is a means to legitimation. It was a way of portraying itself in a good light that the company sponsored knowledge. This meant something because by committing itself, it it committed to fulfilling its obligations, um, meeting the promises it had met. So this is, I think, how ideology works. And this is where my background in intellectual history comes in. Um, once you've committed yourself to a position, you're expected to act in accordance with it. And so this commitment did go fairly deep. You know, um, it's important to note caveats to this. You know, when it committed itself to the cause of education late in its existence, the company did not spend a lot of money on education. So its obsession with education in debates and in its discourse didn't match exactly the way it was spending money. So there are many important caveats like that. At the same time, this commitment ideologically did have real stakes. It did shape the way the company was understood and understood itself. And uh, you also talk about an important character here in the uh, in, in your book, uh, Warren Hastings, who was a uh, who, who kind of patronized the pursuit of science. So, can you tell us a little bit more about him and uh, and his his idea of conciliation that you talk about pursuit of science as a means of conciliation? Uh, that that was a very fascinating part of the book that I was uh, that I myself was really interested in. Well, thanks. Yes, Warren Hastings enters the scene at this critical moment in the 1770s when the East India Company has decided, essentially, faced with mounting criticism on both sides of its empire, both in Britain and in India, that it has to step up and take responsibility for governance in Bengal. Previously. For the past uh, decade or two, it had ruled indirectly and pretended not to really be in control. Um, it gets rid of that thin veneer, decides it will stand forth as the governor of the province. And Warren Hastings is the first governor to do this. And then governor general, he becomes after a couple years. The scene he enters is one of chaos, really, in the operations of the company. It is a moment when it's facing, as I said, intense criticism, both in Britain and in India, from power holders, from political classes in both places. And Hastings has to come up with a way to stabilize the company at this moment, to legitimize it in the eyes of these political classes that question whether it could or, sh uh, or, or should rule extensive territory. And one of the crucial things he does is patronize scholars, ranging from sponsoring expeditions to Bhutan and Tibet, to compiling Hindu and Islamic laws, to founding a madrasa and trying to found a, uh, Islam, uh, uh, a Hindu analog, a seminary in Benares in North India. And all of these activities, he understands as tending to conciliate the political classes in Britain and in India. Scholarship had long been a means to make important alliances in both contexts. It was seen as a duty of rulers, but just as importantly, it was something that merchants could be involved in. So conciliation was also something that merchants as well as sovereigns could do. 
And using this language, using this mode of politics, really was a way of reconciling these two opposing characters of the company, something that was the source of much of the, of the criticism of the company at this time, the fact that it was a merchant in control of huge territories, the merchant performing the role of a sovereign. Conciliation was really a way to show that there were things that merchant sovereigns could do especially well, such as patronizing knowledge. So things that fit both of its roles. And I think that explains a lot of the power of this concept and this uh, language that, that Hastings deployed. It had meaning and power in both places as well, because in South Asia, there were longstanding ideas of conciliation under different names, under different words. One of these was the Persian term sulikul, which has been translated variously, but really meant something like an accommodation between or among different parties. And so conciliation fit here too. It fit with earlier kinds of Persian and South Asian politics that Hastings would have been aware of and that his interlocutors in South Asia would have been aware of as well. So in short, conciliation was this powerful idea because it matched with both of the company's roles. It seemed to reconcile them. It spoke to audiences both in Britain and in South Asia. And it was something that could be done through the patronage of knowledge. And everybody was telling Hastings at this time, everybody from Samuel Johnson back in Britain to other company officials in India, that the company had access to all of this knowledge, all of these scholar officials in its own employ and scholar collaborators among the elite classes in India. It had an opportunity to make friends, make allies, and in high places through its knowledge activities. And so the language of conciliation really is what Hastings develops in his governor generalship from 1772 to 1785. And it, it meets a political need at this moment. Uh, and as much as it was a great idea, there were opponents to this as well. And one of the famous opponents that you talk about was Edmund Burke. So how, on what grounds was this idea of conciliation uh, opposed well, it's interesting. Burke really can be credited as a source for the idea of conciliation. He gives a famous speech in Parliament in uh, the 1780s, talking about the need to conciliate the American colonists. And he's really talking about um, a commercial style for managing a large political community that is uh, far-flung and layered and composite rather than unitary. So Hastings may be picking up ideas from people like Burke when he, as he forms his idea of conciliation. But indeed, Burke becomes an opponent of Hastings, certainly, and of all of the kinds of justifications Hastings gives for his governor generalship. And so you have in the speeches Burke gives in the impeachment trial of Warren Hastings upon Hastings' return to Britain after 1785, you have Burke mentioning all of these scholarly activities and portraying them as really just vehicles for corruption, a kind of thin excuse for the corruption he accuses Hastings of committing, the violence, the extortion, all of these evils that he's trying to charge Hastings with. And essentially his speeches conflate conciliation with corruption. So while he may be a supporter of conciliation as a sort of political principle, He's certainly opposed to what he sees Hastings as doing. And through pamphlets published before the trial, to the speeches giving during, given during the trial, 
in all these places, you see Burke and his allies really dismissing Hastings scholarship and scholarly patronage as just another form of or excuse for corruption. Conciliation gets a bad name. And this is a moment when Hastings immediate replacement, this on the one hand sort of high-minded man of the enlightenment, and on the other hand, very obviously corrupt and uh, notorious figure, John McPherson, is taking this idea of conciliation, running with it, bringing it to a new pitch, really inflating it, making it more ambitious even than it had been on, in Hastings' usage. So this is also feeding into this idea that conciliation is really a kind of corruption in the later 1780s and early 1790s. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you talked about John McPherson. He was my next question, but you did cover that, which is great. And uh, so after all these negative associations with the idea of uh, conciliation, there was another character, Lord uh, Cornwallis, who tried to sort of revive this idea and and, and maybe cleanse it of all these uh, negative ideas that were associated with it. So who was he and how did he manage to, to do that? Yes, so McPherson was the acting replacement for Warren Hastings, but Hastings' permanent replacement, Lord Cornwallis, arrives in 1786, and sets about trying to purify this supposedly corrupt and lawless administration. And he does this not by trying to undermine the East India Company and impose crown rule or something like that, which has been called for by some commentators at the time. He does this not by doing away with all of the political ideas developed by Hastings and worked and developed further by McPherson. He does this instead by trying to purify them to remove corruption from them, create a little bit more distance between the scholar officials that the company had patronized and the scholarly elites and Indian society that the company had patronized and the company itself. So you can see this most obviously in his relationship with the Asiatic society. This was a learned society created by the judge and orientalist William Jones soon after he arrives in Bengal in 1784. And Jones had at first pursued close ties with the company's administration, and even with the Governor General Hastings. Cornwallis, on the other hand, believes that it should be kept at a distance. It can redound to the credit of his government if it's existing and if scholarship is flourishing in this society, but he doesn't want too close a relationship with these scholars because Hastings is coming under criticism for exactly these kind of close relations back in Parliament at this time. So the new relationship he forges with Jones and the Asiatic Society, as well as a number of relationships with individual Indian and European scholars at this time, tells you a lot about his very different idea or reworking of the idea of conciliation, purifying it from these corrupt associations, reestablishing a more distant but more innocent or more upright politics of knowledge at this time for the East India Company. And... Uh... You talk about a college, a college of Fort William, which uh, which belonged to Lord Wellesley, and the college came to pose a threat or let's say a danger maybe to the East Indian Company. So who was Lord Wellesley and what was the college and what was the whole controversy about that college? So let me take us up to the moment when this college is founded. Mm -hmm. uh, Cornwallis has come in and uh, established this purer idea of conciliation, removing these corrupt associations striking more distant relationships with scholar officials and collaborators. 
the moment of intense criticism of the company and of Hastings passes, Hastings is ultimately exonerated by the House of Lords and the danger to the company fades only for another danger to appear in the form of Lord Wellesley, who is appointed governor general and sails for India in 1798. He gets to India and unlike his predecessors, sets about undoing the legitimacy of the company. He really sets himself up as a sovereign in his own right, as a sort of monarch or king, and as a conqueror. He tries to create this large territorial empire of British India, going beyond the limited territorial extent of the company up to that point. He sets himself up as a kingly figure, somebody who will be adorned with the regalia of an emperor or a king. Somebody will hold great ceremonies, a lot of pomp and pageantry, and somebody who will have a very different relationship with knowledge than his predecessors had. For him, conciliation is anathema. Conciliation is something that both merchants and sovereigns can do. And here he is actually trying to undo this merchant sovereign character of the East India Company. He thinks that the two are incompatible characters. It should be an empire, a territorial kingly empire in India, not, not a merchant in control of, of what should be the realm of a king. And the college is a vehicle for this program, both in its imagery, it has these lavish, ostentatious disputations every year that redound to his own glory, Wellesley's own glory. He's at the center of these disputations, presiding over them. People are invited from all over the place, around Asia. And the college is meant to really reinforce this vision of a, of a different British empire in India, not run by the company, but run by the king, Wellesley. The college also has a practical purpose, of course, in training civil servants, training East India Company servants to fulfill their new responsibilities in charge of an expanding empire. But I think it's the symbolism of the college that's more dangerous, more a threat to the company. And this whole dispute unfurls between Wellesley and the directors back in Britain who see the danger of the college a little bit belatedly, but they do see it as a threat to their authority in both practical terms, because Wellesley is proposing to take control of appointments away from them. Civil servants who go through the college will be sent to one presidency or another by him under his original plan, not by the directors. So there is a kind of practical import to the college, but it also is supporting symbolically and I think more powerfully a very different vision of the British empire in India, one where the company and where at least the directors and the old mercantile company has no place. That's the danger posed by the college and it's why the directors set about destroying the college. At first, they try to simply abolish it. This doesn't work. They're checked by this new supervisory board of control in Britain, which is aligned with Wellesley. Ultimately, the directors decide to kill the college by a thousand cuts, reducing its resources and founding a college of their own to overshadow it back in Britain. And so a lot of what happens around this time, these, these different colleges for civil servants being founded and this intense, very acrimonious fight between Wellesley and the directors can be explained by the powerful uh, symbolism and, and symbolic importance of the college in supporting a really different conception of empire than the directors are willing to countenance. Another 
really, really interesting part of the book was this engagement and collaboration between Indian scholars uh, and and also uh, scholars from East India Company. So how was this collaboration worked? How how were these networks established? And again, I'm interested in knowing that if if that reliance on uh, native knowledge was used to benefit the to benefit India, or again, to some extent, it was still used for the uh, interests of the company? Well, I think that there's no easy answer to the question of whether India benefited from the activities of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of try to exonerate the company on this ground or to try to tear it down. I think uh, mm-hmm. something I learned from writing this book was that the categories like the company, the state, and the knowledge are very malleable and can be remade. And so mm-hmm. critics of the company tended to have more success when they engaged with the company, when they tried to hold it up to the promises it had met, than when they dismissed the possibility of its meeting them. And so that's why I, I ultimately came to feel that, you know, while I, I, as the author of this book, had no nostalgia for the company, no particular <laughs> wish to, uh, you know, hold it up as mistreated and abused by revisionist historians. On the other hand, I, I I didn't wish to dismiss the possibility that corporate involvement and in, in knowledge can be made a positive thing. Um, and so one example of this is all of these discoveries and, and contributions to scholarship that were made by uh, through collaborations uh, on very unequal terms, certainly between European scholar officials and Indian scholar collaborators. Um, I think dismissing all of this as simply Orientalist knowledge with no value would lead to some surprising conclusions. Um, it would it would mean you know undoing actually a lot of what we know and what we. So I I'm reluctant to take it that far. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should be certainly clear eyed about the the conditions of power that shaped these relationships. That's where I think the school of colonial knowledge is right and has been right that. We have to think about power when we think about knowledge. It's just that I would like to look at power, how it was actually conceptualized by people at the time. One of the missions of this book is to introduce a different way of looking at the politics of knowledge, to say that historical actors, European and Asian, and um, really at a global level, were quite sophisticated about the relationship between power and knowledge. We don't only have, we don't only need modern frameworks to understand this relationship, we can go back to the terms and debates used by thinkers at the time. And I I think that's one thing that I tried to do throughout the book is is look at how people on the company side and on the Indian side were were thinking about the politics of knowledge. And this gets back to your first question about how networks were made between and how connections were made between these scholars. They often came about through the official business of the company. They involved scholar officials enlisting the help of Indian scholar collaborators, um, especially pundits and Malvis, who were seen to be, at least in the North, the repositories of the uh, of knowledge of the highest quality and seen to be the most reliable, the most influential partners for company scholar officials. And so you get a very interesting dynamic of of collaboration, uh, sometimes uneasy, sometimes slightly less than willing, but very long lived. You get really long lasting 
partnerships among these different participants in the creation of knowledge on the company side and on the uh, Indian elite side. And I study those and the debates surrounding them throughout the book. Um, I, I think you, you, you gave me the perfect answer. It's quite difficult to talk about um, East India Company and, you know, and not get bogged down into this discussion whether uh, colonized people benefited or not. But you, what, what I like about your book is that you took a completely different approach to, um, to, to, uh, to, to study this area, which is the politics of knowledge. Um, mm. and, and I'm really interested to know more about the idea of native education and why it became a contentious issue uh, in there. Yes. So I'm going to try to catch us up a little bit to this question of native education there's a moment after the dissolution of the College of Fort William when, because of the animosity between Wellesley and the directors, the directors back in Britain lose faith in these relationships between company scholar officials and Indian scholar collaborators. They become especially wary of company scholar officials, and they become skeptical about the political value of knowledge, something that since Hastings' time they had really believed in. They believed that Patronizing scholars was a way to conciliate political classes on both ends of their empire. This is what they had believed. But with Wellesley's college proving to be such a, a threat to their authority, they, they wind up losing faith in the political value of knowledge um, writ large. And so you see this weakening of the company's interest in knowledge by the later 1800s and into the 1810s. On the other hand, you see something else emerging. The company becomes the paramount power in India, the sort of hegemonic power in India, no major rivals by 1818. And at the same time, this is an age of reform at an imperial and even in some historians understanding a global level. And so you have publics increasingly engaging with governments and demanding good government. So both of these dynamics are at work here in the company's politics of knowledge. It's expanded and, and has new responsibilities for an all India level. It no longer faces major rivals. It's turning its attention to governing and it's being confronted with publics that are now asserting their rights as a public to engage with their government and demand good government. And this is where education enters into the picture. You see increasingly voluntary societies, often uh, run by missionaries, but really not only missionaries, broad-based membership in Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay. And these societies at first are calling for government intervention, participation. You also then see the company itself trying to justify its government by a commitment to education. And this happens kind of slowly. You have, in 1813, a Charter Act, which on the one hand, this is the uh, act renewing the company's charter, its rights, political and commercial. So <clears throat> on the one hand, this Charter Act of 1813 remo uh, removes the company's monopoly of trade between India and Europe. Henceforth, it... Is, does not have a privileged status as a trader between India and Europe. And pretty quickly, its trade with India shrivels. It's undercut not only by foreign powers, but by free merchants. It still has a monopoly on the China route, so it still has that 
very profitable avenue for trade. And it becomes all the more necessary to find a new way to justify itself uh, now that its trading role has shriveled. And so it leans even more heavily on its good government, its ability to provide good government. And so it sees education as a way to do this increasingly. Another thing that happens in the 1813 Charter is the introduction of a clause, which I argue is really at first about reinvigorating scholarly patronage. But it, over time, it gets interpreted more and more as providing funding for education purposes. And so by the later 1810s and into the 1820s, you have this charter's, uh, a certain clause in the charter being interpreted as a mandate for providing education on the part of the company to Indian to an Indian population. And debate ensues over how to spend this money. It, it is ensuing not only in Bengal the, and not only in Calcutta, the capital of the company's empire in India, but in Bombay, Madras, even Singapore, a new territory. And you see all this ink being spilled on the question of how the company should, should set about providing education, what kind of system of public education it should set up. You get different models tried out in the 1820s and 30s and all three presidencies. And ultimately, this leads to the so-called Anglicist-Orientalist controversy. Now, should I hold off here and, and get to that after you? Well, actually, uh, I wanted to ask, ask you about, about that. So I go, go ahead, please. Yeah, I guess <laughs> that's perfectly uh, relevant. Right. Huh? Yes. So different models have been tried. And basically, the, the main conflict among many, many different kinds of conflicts that emerge, the main one that emerges is between an idea of conciliation, which has changed a bit from its old form. There's, as it's now used, conciliation means keeping up this elite set of pundits and Malvis, continuing to patronize them in the hope that they're middlemen that can influence a broader Indian society. So education reformers and proponents who cite conciliation mean that they're going to educate pundits and Malvis first and Ultimately, maybe there is a goal of mass education, but it's it's in the distance. And it's important to keep up these reliable allies, continue to patronize them. On the other hand, you have supporters of mass education who believe not in keeping up this elite as it's seen. I mean, we can debate a little bit whether the British really understood these social categories, but they see the pundits and Malvis as an elite class. And the proponents of mass education think that they should be essentially uh, over, uh, you know, uh, education should not only be provided to an elite, but provided to uh, a larger group in society, a larger public in society. And so there's a debate um, between conciliation on the one hand, elite conciliation and mass education. I think this debate really is still running strong into the next decade, into the 1830s, and is still at work in the famous Anglicist Orientalist controversy. If you were to ask most historians of the British Empire about British education policy in India, the document that everybody knows is Macaulay's Minute on Education in 1835. And it's usually held up as this sort of Western chauvinist, triumphalist call for English and European education at the expense of native education. And so it's assumed then, based on this minute, that this was really the main tension Whole books have been written explaining the supposedly deep origins of this conflict between Oriental and Western knowledge and explaining the deep origins of Macaulay's position and its, its triumph in this moment against the so-called Orientalists, a faction of officials who 
again, supposedly called for a continued emphasis on Oriental knowledge. Now, I think that this is actually a mistaken emphasis. Not only was Macaulay's Minute not the only or even not the most important writing on education in this period, but framing the debate in these terms of Orientalism versus Anglicism suggests a, a, a kind of emphasis on language and culture that I think was secondary still to the debate between conciliation and mass education. And it's one official, Charles Edward Trevelyan, who conflates these issues momentarily. He's the kind of founder of the Anglicist party. And he, on the other hand, describes his position not really often as Anglicist, but as populist or popular, I should say. His idea is mass education. And he thinks that he, he allies this idea with English education. So he conflates the two, but it's, I think, still mass education that's the more popular prong in this and the more important one. On the other hand, you have the Orientalists, who I think have also been sort of mischaracterized. They, partly through Trevelyan's rhetoric and his framing, conflated Eastern education with an elite agenda, an elite conciliatory agenda, conciliatory in that sense I described a moment ago. And so what you have very briefly is this moment of debate, um, both over uh, language and culture on the one hand and conciliation versus mass education on the other hand. But that, uh, that kind of framing fades. And in later decades, it's really mass education that wins out over conciliation. That's the main effect of this 1835 moment when Macaulay appears triumphant. I think that's actually the longer term effect. The role of English is is not as important. It's really more fleeting. The idea that English is going to be the language of India. Almost immediately concessions are made by the governor general Bentinck. And you don't see the same emphasis on English really even at the other presidencies. So again, I think it's mass education triumphing over conciliation in 1835. And Anglicism and Orientalism is the less important opposition at that moment, even, and certainly in the longer term. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad you talked about Macaulay's Minute, because I was, before reading your book, I was one of the people who was kind of plagued with the idea that that was the, let's say, the, the dominant or maybe the paradigmatic mode of the British looking at education in, in India. Uh, before ending this conversation, Joshua, I'm keen to know if uh, you're working any other projects or any other books that might be published sometime soon? Well, thanks. I, I don't have a book in the works just yet. I am I have a few book ideas. Uh, I'm working really right now through a backlog of articles that got extended as I worked on the book and <laughs> uh, commitments that got pushed back. But my current interest really, one among others, is in the origins of Indian print culture. So I have an article coming out on that and I'm working hard on another article that's sort of a sequel to that, looking at early uh, Native Indian participation in print culture, which I think began as early as the 18th century, even the early or mid 18th century, possibly even earlier, but certainly we have a lot of evidence to suggest that it wasn't only in the 19th century as, as typically understood that Indian involvement in print culture got started. And I've, I've found looking at different source bases, indications that there was a, an active Indian print community much earlier than the 19th century. And it was its emergence in the 18th century that gave rise to the popular mass 
Indian print culture of the 19th century that's that's more familiar and it's the starting point for print historians of South Asia. So that's one interest among others right now. And you'll see a few articles from me coming out on that in the coming years. I have a few book ideas and I'm working towards those as well. Uh, thank you very much. It's, it all sounds like very exciting uh, projects, especially Indian print culture. And I think it has a very, very long history as well. Because I know that some of the great uh, classic works of Persian literature were first published in India and then moved all the way from India to 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 Iran. So I'm really looking yeah. forward to reading your future work. That's right. And you'll see lists of Indian subscribers to those works in the 1780s and 90s, mm, suggesting that yeah. there's already this Indian reading public um, publicly subscribing and patronizing these uh, Persian works and, and other works uh, before the moment when we typically think of print culture emerging in India. Mm. And it has is, a global it, importance too. Yeah. Is it uh, going to be published this year? That's a good question. I, I have one piece that's accepted and, and ready to go in book history, the journal book history, and it should be out either in 2023 or 2024. I'm not sure yet. Mm -hmm. And then I'm working wow. on a sequel to that. Well, I keep my eyes open, uh, hopefully, Thanks to read so that work as soon once yeah, it's published. Yeah, please let me know what you think. <laughs> sure. Thank you very much, Joshua, for your time. Really enjoyed talking to you on New Books Network. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time and your great questions.